On today's show, what does a year three leap look like for Jalen Green? Also, Rockets' new assistant coach Ben Sullivan on defensive and shooting philosophies and how those can impact this Rockets team moving forward. Also, Jalen Brown receives the Supermax from the Boston Celtics. How does that impact the Rockets' potential chances at pursuing him further down the line, or should they even want to pursue him at this point? It's all coming up right here at Locked on Rockets. This is Mission Control, Houston. Ignition sequence start. The Houston Rockets select Jalen Green, Alperon Shengun, and Jabari Smith Jr. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. Every time I step on that floor, I'm coming. Hey, Houston fans, I am so happy. You're getting somebody who's going to come in with a chip on their shoulder, somebody who's going to come, come in and compete from day one. Six, five, four, three, two. One. What's up and welcome to another edition of Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Gatlin, native Houstonian and credentialed media member. I'm also the host of Locked on NBA Mondays. Be sure to follow along on Twitter at JT Gatlin and the show, of course, at Locked on Rockets, free and available wherever you listen to your podcast, including YouTube. Just go to YouTube, search Locked on Rockets. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And as always, thank you so much for making LOR part of your day every single day, whether it's on the way to work, on your lunch break, in the gym. Thank you for making LOR part of your day every single day. And joining us now is your weekly co-host, none other than the Podfather himself, Rockets Wire editor and host of the Logger Line podcast, Ben Dubose. You can follow on X, I guess now, <laughs> at Ben Dubose. God, this X so- marks the spot. Oh, man, no, there's, there's going to be so many terrible puns with this. It's, I'm going to have to change the whole intro and how I introduce myself because we've we've baked Twitter into everything. We still have the little bird logos on our like YouTube graphics, Ben. This is awful. Yeah. All right. We're not going to get down. Keep the, bird, to, keep the bird logos up as a relic. There we go. Right. It's just it, we'll, we'll pay homage to the uh, to what used to be uh, RIP. Twitter had a good, what, 13 years or whatever it was, um, 14 years, however long it actually existed. Uh, I got on Twitter late anyways. So let's not derail things here from the top. We got a bunch of different things we want to tackle today. And our first uh, pit stop along the roadmap of this show. Let's go with Jalen Green, who hmm. is, we're seeing, you know, it's it's that time of year, you're getting all the off-season workout videos, the hype videos, but I think the biggest thing for Jalen is we're seeing him work out with some really big-name kind of guys, namely Kevin Durant, and working out with other members of the USA Men's uh, Select team, I believe, and just kind of... We're seeing him. He has the highlight video of him cooking Juan Toscano Anderson, and he had some uh, very choice mm-hmm. words for him after the fact. There's you know highlights of him just pulling up on Kevin Durant in transition, and the I guess for me, Ben, when I look at Jalen being able to have moments like this, getting into some of these runs, and just building on that confidence that we already know he has a ton of, you know, I think it's. We, we look at what he can potentially do and and what might be the parameters for a year three leap for him. But I, I really do think that when you're seeing some of these moments and you see all the work that he's putting in behind the scenes, you know that he is constantly in the lab. He's constantly working on his body. He's almost up to 200 pounds now after being so thin coming into the NBA. He's clearly working towards trying to make himself the best version that he can be. 
Well, and I think it also shows some accountability that he knows this coming season is massive for him on a number of levels. First, financially, look, the Rockets can offer him an extension next offseason. And to this point, he has not shown enough to be worthy of the max. So he needs to have that Anthony Edwards leap if he wants the Rockets to offer him the type of deal that I'm sure in a perfect world, he would like to have that level of financial security next offseason. Beyond that, Look, just in terms of his career trajectory, I know we like to dunk on the critics, the people who have painted him as, you know, a potential six man because he's a scorer and not much else to this point. The Dion Waiters, Jordan Clarkson type comps. And a lot of that stuff is circumstantial. He has not had the right infrastructure around him relative to certainly Anthony Edwards when he had his lead or Evan Mobley, the guy who was picked right after him in the 2021 draft. Look, a lot of those excuses go out the window next season. At some point, you are going to have to rise above it and simply be the type of player that is worthy of that draft slot, worthy of the next contract that he wants. And while I think all the reasons we've thrown out for the last couple of years are valid in terms of, you know, Evan Mobley, yes, he was picked a slot below Jalen and to this point has been better in the NBA, but he's in a perfect situation in Cleveland with all the right infrastructure. He's got playmakers in Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. He's got a rim protecting big in Jared Allen. And so he can really focus on his role, the complete 180 degree opposite of Jalen Green in Houston, who has been asked to do way too much too early in his career, even before he turned 21 years old. All of that is valid. All of that is true. But entering year three, we're getting to put up or shut up time. He's got to come through in a big way. And now You've added Fred Vendley, you've added Dylan Brooks, you have a capable sporting cast, you've got Ime Udoka. So all the reasoning that we can throw out the last couple of years as to why he hasn't been that efficient and hasn't had the huge type breakout that you would like to see from a player of his uh, just overall talent base. Again, all those excuses go out the window this coming season. It's a big year on multiple levels. And I love seeing in the offseason that he seems to be embracing that as well. He's also on the, the U.S. select team, and I think all of these are examples of iron sharpening iron going up against the best. It can only help. And, yeah, it's a great time because ultimately it is a massive offseason for Jalen Green. What does a year three leap for Jalen Green look like to you, Ben? Um, The biggest thing is going to be the efficiency, in my opinion. I think we've already seen him getting to the free throw line more. We've already seen his ability to score at a high level. Not saying that 22 points per game is going to be his ceiling, but I think especially year three, I don't think it's realistic to say, okay, now this is the year he jumps to closer to 30 points per game. No, there's still a learning curve. Guys of his archetype, you think the Zach Levine, Devin Booker types, it's often not until year five, year six, that they get close to their peak. So it's not so much that there's a certain points per game average that you want to see him get to next year. And he already has shown some steps forward in regards to the foul drawing that I think bodes well for him long-term. But I think really now that he's not being asked to run the offense all the time as the primary playmaker and shot creator, then I would like to see that true shooting percentage creep into the upper 50s. It's really not that much to ask. I mean, Kevin Porter Jr., who I don't think is as talented as Jalen, but, you know, his year four season, for the last 35 or 40 games, I don't have the stat right in front of me, but basically since middle December, his true shooting percentage was right at 60. I think if you can let Jalen focus a bit more on the efficiency, not having to do too much, 
then yeah, getting that true shooting percentage from where it's been the last couple of years, about 54% up towards 57, 58%. Also to see some of the defensive impact stats tick up a little bit. He has not been an impact defender to this point, but again, there's reasons for that. Look at the offensive burden you've had to put on him. So for me, I would say it's less about the counting stats and it's more about the efficiency metrics and the defense. If he takes a step forward in those ways and on paper, he should, because he's going to be asked to do a lot less now that you have other playmakers alongside him in that starting lineup, other veterans that can be trusted, then ultimately, you know, the counting stats to an extent are already there. It's that you need to see steps forward in efficiency and defense, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. I was on we I joined uh, Frank on the Chop Shop channel the other day, and my thing was I I want to see the efficiency creep up, and I at this point I don't even need to see we don't need to see the points per game go any higher. Like I I think right. for a good season for Jalen would actually be the points per game could take a hit, right? Because you've got so many other weapons and, and talented players on the roster. Now maybe Jabari takes a step forward offensively. Alper and Shingu sure. would possibly a bigger role. Obviously Fred and Dylan factoring in there too. You know, he could very easily drop and go back below even 20 points a game. But if the efficiency creeps up and gets to the place where it's a little bit more respectable, right? That 55 to 60% range of true shooting, then you start to feel a lot better about him being your future, like tip of the spear, your number one option, your point of attack offensively. Because as you already alluded to, right, he has to do less and is responsible for less. But we also know that Ime has a vision for wanting to make Jalen a more complete player. Now, the defense is a part of that, but also the playmaking. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he actually deploys him next season. I don't expect him to fully become just, just a scorer and he's not responsible for running any plays, that kind of thing. He's still going to get his steady diet of like the ball in his hands and his chance to be a decision maker within the Rockets offense. But as you pointed out, you know, Fred... Dylan Brooks, like all these other guys adding to this Rockets core are going to make life easier for him, both on the offensive end and on the defensive side of the ball, which is so, so important. Coming up, want to get into some of the thoughts out of Rockets assistant coach Ben Sullivan, uh, a fantastic interview from the Athletics' Kelly Eco. We're going to get to some of his thoughts on this Rockets team moving forward, as well as Jalen Brown signing a Supermax extension and what, what it potentially means for the Rockets pursuing him further down the line. We're going to get there in just one moment. First, today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Take your first swing at betting MLB on FanDuel and get 10 times, 10 times your first bet amount in bonus bets up to $200. That's right. Just bet 20 bucks and you'll land $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. That's 200 that you can spend betting everything from the money line to over-unders to who you think is going to hit the first run of the night. All in an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Plus, when you win, you can get paid instantly. There's no better place to bet on MLB action than FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. So sign up today and visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get up to $200 in bonus bets. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. And continuing on here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball. Now, the Athletics Kelly Eco did a fantastic one-on-one interview. Ben Sullivan unplugged, if you will. I'm going to include a link to the article in the episode description. Absolutely go check it out. Look, I, I will say, right, having 
spent time with Ben Sullivan in Vegas Summer League, getting the chance to get to know him and kind of, you know, at this point, Ben Sullivan is really an extension of Ime Odoka, right? And the vision yeah. that he has for this Rockets team and what he's trying to grow and develop and build here. So it's almost like a precursor in a way to what we can expect out of what this team is going to ultimately look like next season. And so for a bit of a, a bit of a peek behind the curtain, if you will, uh, Kelly asked some fantastic questions about kind of some of the direction of this team moving forward and some thoughts from Ben Sullivan. So we're, you know, I've got a couple pieces of that article picked out that I thought really stood out to me, Ben, that I want to share here. Yep. Um, the first of which was just talking about the kind of defensive identity of the summer league team and how that kind of translates back to what they're trying to accomplish this upcoming season. And the part that really stood out to me was asked about, you know, switching, right. And, and yes, would thing would they, would they focus on switching a lot this next season? And Ben Sullivan's answer was so refreshing to hear. Um, essentially he boils it down. He says, I, I wouldn't say that switching is just the end all be all of everything, but it's a personnel driven philosophy. If you have yes. players that can guard multiple positions, then that's a strategy that you would want to use. And if you don't have that, then you wouldn't in the first two games, he highlighted that they had Jay Huff out there. Um, but then when they didn't have as much size on the floor, they had to rely on switching quite a bit more. This was the selling point to me when he goes, I wouldn't say just switching in and of itself is something that we're just trying to emphasize, but I do know Ime likes switching. We switched a lot at the last place, so Boston, but he's not the type of coach where you just do things one way. We're going to look at our personnel, we're going to get who we're playing, and then we're going to emphasize the best strategy for our team against the other team, which means, are you telling me, Ben, that an NBA-level head coach or assistant coach is actually allowed to tailor their game plan to the players on their roster? What a novel concept. I know. That's one of the biggest cheat codes of all. Look, everyone thinks of Mike D'Antoni as very rigid in regards to his philosophies, but honestly, the best Rockets team in recent memory and maybe in franchise history, I know they didn't get the, the ring. You go back to that 65-win team in 2017 to 2018, Chris Paul and James Harden, were slow. They were isolation heavy. They were not seven seconds or less at all. Yet Mike D'Antoni modified his system, one of the most, I would say, innovative in NBA history when he did it with the Phoenix Suns. And he did something almost entirely different in Houston because that's what made sense for his players. And that's what good coaches in the modern game do because so much of winning a championship is about roster construction. It's not just the old days in which if you have the right coach, you have such a fundamental advantage that you can just bring in guys to play your way. You know, think Tom Thibodeau ball as an example in the modern game and just bring in, you know, a Tibbs type player. The problem with that in the modern NBA is that so many other organizations and teams are smart as well. So you've got to take advantage of the best opportunities to get with everyone as good as the league is right now, with the competition as high as it is, you've got to be willing to simply adapt what you do to the system to bring the best out of the talent that you have in place. And if it's tough to switch five out with Alperin Shingun in the middle, but it looks like Alperin Shingun can be, you know, not going to throw this label on him, but, you know, like a smaller Houston version of Nikola Jokic, if he looks like a legit star, then guess what? Don't switch one through five. You can drop a little bit with Shingun if that's what you think you need to do, and he's not holding up on these switches. The best coaches in the modern game, you've got to get the best out of your players because the competition is just that high. And so showing a willingness to adjust your scheme to the personnel 
that's one of the most important things of all when it comes to finding that edge from your coaching staff. Yeah, and seeing what Ime is ultimately going to decide to do, especially on the defensive side of the ball with Alper and Shingun is easily one of the biggest, you know, I'll, I'll be willing to put it as, you know, one of the top five, like, burning questions that we have kind of going into this next season is, A, what does Ime decide think that he thinks is the best overall defensive scheme to deploy with Alper mm -hmm. and Shingun? Because for the better part of two seasons going through the end of the Steven Silas tenure, it was just, he only played him in drop, right? It was the only type of defensive scheme that we saw out, out of Steven Silas utilizing Alper and Shingun was, okay, he's just going to drop every single position. Now, sometimes it was more of a deep drop. Sometimes he played yeah. more at the level of the screen, but for the most part, that was it. Now, under Ime, how does he deploy him, right? Does he maybe try switching a little bit with Alpi? Does he maybe try to hide him a little bit defensively and put him on some of the, you know, weaker wings around the NBA so that he can maybe be, you know, not as involved in some of those on-the-ball actions? Maybe he, you know, puts more of the onus on Jabari Smith Jr. in the starting lineup to be the big "Quote unquote," defending mm. some of those actions and heavily involved in the pick and roll. Does and he we should note that while Shingun is a classic, you know, drop guy in terms of his body type, mm -hmm. the numbers, especially when he was a rookie, were actually pretty good on his switches. So yeah. it's one of those things, you know. On paper, it may make sense to drop in and in some matchups you might want to, but the main thing is to have an open mind, to have that flexibility to do what the matchup and do what, you know, the numbers say. And I think that's where, when we're looking at Ben Sullivan as kind of an extension of Ime Odoka and what can we, what we can expect out of this coaching staff this next season, I think that's one thing that you're seeing a lot of is there's, there's a very clear level of creativity in place, but also just the willingness to be flexible and adapt to the players on the roster. I really do think that, unfortunately, there was a bit of a, I guess maybe like a brain drain with the Steven Siles coaching staff, where I, I don't really think there was a ton of uh, inspirational confidence coming from that that coaching staff in empowering players and having a clear vision for what they wanted to achieve and the things that they set out to do. You know, I, I don't think you had, you know, Lionel Hollins and Rick Higgins were out there, you know, making players feel like they could become the best versions of themselves, that kind of thing. Whereas you're, I mean, through what, six summer league games and a handful of, you know, one-on-one -on -one interviews and stuff, Ben Sullivan already seems leaps and bounds above those other two guys as coaches. And I think that's going to extend to Royale Ivy and, and Cam Hodges and so many of the other names that are on this coaching staff, just young energetic guys, innovative guys, guys who have an understanding of Ime's vision for this to be moving forward and how to yeah. implement some of those philosophies to get the to get the most out of the guys on this roster. Yeah, and the year before that, it was Jeff Hornacek. I think they yeah. erred so much on the side of experience because Steven Silas being a first-time head coach, being relatively unproven, and you have such a young team, you want guys that can help these guys learn to be professionals, but they leaned so much on experience that it felt like there wasn't a lot of energy they, they might have brought in guys that were optimal for, you know, helping these guys. And we talk about Lionel Hollins. We can throw John Lucas into that mix as well. Guys that are very experienced that can help them with regards to, you know, just the macro level turning into a professional. But in terms of the micro, the day-to-day -day schemes, it just did not seem like that 
those practices had nearly the energy that I think you saw when you were out in, in Vegas with Ben Sullivan at Summer League. And so I think that's the kind of thing that hopefully with this, you have your head coach in Ime Udoka, who clearly has a lot of experience, a lot of pedigree. But now you have some younger assistants that hopefully are going to be better in terms of just the day-to-day, the micro, getting these guys to buy in and learn the concepts of these schemes in a way that some of the older coaching staffs of recent Rockets history weren't able to. And what I think it says, too, is there, there's a level of conviction that Ime has as a coach and the belief system that he yeah. has in place in these guys. Because my understanding previously was, you know, with Silas's, you know, different iterations of his coaching staff is the one guy that Steven Silas actually, like, tapped and wanted to bring on board was Rick Higgins. But then the other names that were involved, Hornacek and, and Will Weaver originally, those were guys mm. that were... It wasn't the Rockets. It wasn't the Rockets front office. It wasn't Rafael Stone going out and just saying, "Oh, well, I I want these guys on your staff." It was Stephen didn't really have any guys that he mm-hmm. felt strongly about. He didn't have any names that he was like, "I really want to go get this guy." Like, I right. need this guy on my staff. He has to be here. The only guy that he felt that way about was Rick Higgins, and that was kind of an extension. You know, he you know friend of the family type thing, wanting to pay it forward yeah. a little bit for his coaching career. So he basically had. Will Weaver and Hornacek, who, uh, you know, Will Weaver, you know, could have been a head coach in a few other spots. He seemed like a really sharp guy. And then Hornacek, just again, from the the tenure standpoint, John Lucas was kind of a holdover from the previous regime. And that was kind of a decision of just like, hey, we want to make sure we have some continuity here. And John Lucas is, you know, a basketball legend. Keep him around. His, he's got a He's a wealth of wisdom. But then... Steven wound up making some roster, you know, some staff changes going to this year. Lionel Hollins was a name that he did want to bring in. But then, you know, my understanding is it didn't really make an impact, right? Lionel Hollins didn't have mm. the positive level impact. It wasn't able to help on the defensive side the way that I guess Steven was expecting him to. So when you look at Ime Odoka, who had zero qualms about, okay, I'm going to go get these guys, right? Obviously, he didn't have Damon Stoudemire and Will Hardy. Those guys have moved on to uh, different roles, bigger and better things than just being uh, Ime Odoka's assistants any longer. But he went out and got his guys, right? He cultivated his staff with zero issues of like, oh, I don't know who I'm going to get. Like, he has a conviction about him and about what he wants to achieve. And I think that really does bode well. Yeah, and the fact that he drew guys like Ben Sullivan out of good situations. Look, it's not easy to get guys to take lateral moves to a lesser team because Boston, Brooklyn, these are big markets on the East Coast that have been relevant very recently. Boston was a game away from the NBA Finals this season. They were in the NBA Finals a year ago. And so to get them from those situations to Houston – It reflects well on a number of levels. Certainly Tillman Fertitta had to spend. He had to cut some nice checks, I'm sure. But it also shows their trust in Ime and what he's trying to build. And I think it speaks well on multiple levels. Like Clearly, Ime knew what he wanted to do. I love that that there weren't really a lot of uh, rumors that turned out to be inaccurate. Because when that happens, it tells you that, well, the rumors probably were accurate. It's just he couldn't close the deal. No, in general, the rumors that were out there... As far as his targets for the assistant coaching staff, for the most part, he was able to close those. And so it tells you that he got who he wanted. He had a vision. He wasn't indecisive. And to this point, it's paid off. You know, the things that stood out to me about Summer League, you know, I went into this on greater depth than my latest uh, Logger Line episode where we did a deep dive on Summer League. The three-point shooting was fantastic, which tells you it's not just the volume. They got clean looks and they made them. Defensively, what stood out the most, they didn't foul. No one in the rotation got into foul trouble at all. And in summer league where you can't really foul out, you see that a lot. Guys are going for the highlight plays. They're uber aggressive. There's not really the the fear they have in the regular season of fouling out. So you give away a lot of cheap points. 
the Rockets defensively, they were in sync. They trusted each other with the switching scheme. And the best illustration I can give, Kim Whitmore, who is a classic guy. He's young. He's super athletic. He can jump passing lanes. He's the type of guy you'd think would pick up a lot of cheap fouls. He actually averaged 1.3 fouls per game in summer league. That, to me, speaks to the discipline that they played with and the trust they had in one another. And it's hard not to think that that goes back to the coaching staff and how prepared they are. Because, again, it's just sort of the complete opposite of the way most summer leagues go. And so I thought, you know, it's very early. And, you know, the shooting's part of it. I loved in that Kelly interview, you know, he was like, oh, I'm not a shooting guru. And these guys do want to be known for other things than just that. And, you know, clearly shooting, like we're all going to talk about that because the Rockets have been bad the last couple of years, shooting for three-point range, so many other young prospects to maximize them. You need to get them to the next level in terms of their three-point shooting. So guys that have some pedigree in that, then Sullivan, Cam Hodges, that's important. But in that interview, Ben pushed back on the idea that he's just a shooting guy. And I think the numbers reflected it. Certainly, they had good numbers in Las Vegas, but they did the other things, too. And defensively, in particular, they seem to be bought in in a way that even if we're just comparing apples to apples, even if we're just, just, just comparing 2023 Summer League to 2021 and 2022, the vibe felt completely different with what the coaching staff had this group of Summer Rockets able to do relative to the last couple of years. And I really don't think the talent was all that different. The vibes were absolutely immaculate at Summer League this year for the Rockets. Coming up, I do want to get into that shooting guru uh, label that Ben Sullivan decided to push back on a little bit, as well as some thoughts on the Jalen Brown Supermax extension. We're going to get there in just one moment. And final segment here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball. Now, that quote that been pointed out there at the end of segment two. Uh, ben Sullivan was asked by Kelly Eco. He's been regarded in some league circles as a shooting guru. And uh, he, he kind of asked, you know, what are your pillars for improvement in that area? You know, when, when it comes to, you know, trying to get the most out of players and, First thing Sullivan says, he goes, just to clear it up, I'm not a shooting guru. I've never said that. I don't think of myself like that. As far as shooting, I've talked about this before, but he highlights working in San Antonio with Chip England, one of the great teachers of shooting uh, and the game. And he's also, and he goes on to say, and he's also to me, one of the best coaches of coaches out there. He really taught me how to teach. And he goes on to say, for that, I'll never be able to you know, fully repay him. Before going into you know what he specifically says about shooting, I do think right. You look at what the San Antonio Spurs have kind of built from a coaching perspective there, and obviously we have like the Popovich coaching tree, but also extends to Chip England, and I think that's you know the the quote there from Sullivan talking about he's a great uh, coach of coaches, right? Because it's one thing mm -hmm. to be a good coach like innately, like you're just good at coaching. It's another to be able to impart that level of wisdom and skill and the ability to teach onto another coach so that that person can then grow and become a good coach in their own right. And you do have to give a lot of credit to the Spurs organization for the insane amount of coaching talent that they have ultimately churned out over the years because there is a, I mean, the, the Popovich coaching tree is so widespread around the NBA landscape. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to the theme we were saying in the previous segment, which is have some humility and realize just how high the competition level is in the modern NBA. That's really how this league has shifted so much over the last 20 to 30 years. Even good coaching staffs don't have the institutional advantage that you used to have. Everyone is smart. This data-driven era, it's made it 
all the more difficult. I mean, there's a few dumb teams out there, but really not that many. Everyone is trying, for the most part, to do the right thing. So it's not just a matter of do you have the right principles? Do you have the right systems? Are you believing in the right context and prioritizing the right things when you put together your offense and your defense? It's also about how you're communicating it, how you're adapting it to your personnel to get the best out of them in terms of, you know, we talked earlier about like X's and O's and all out switching versus drop. What works best for a lineup with Shingoon? What works best for a lineup with, say, Jabari Smith Jr. at the five and so on and so forth? But it also, the, the same principle applies to teaching. It's not just what you're teaching, it's how you're teaching. And I think that can be such a critical distinction because, again, in today's NBA, a lot of teams at a high level know what they should do. They know what they want to do. But it's how you get through to the players that can be the difference, especially with a team that's this young. And perhaps that's why it's beneficial to have a younger coaching staff. And you've got guys who have recently been in the NBA, like Tiago Splitter in there as well. Royal Ivy, he's certainly in that same criteria. Maybe that helps the Rockets get through to these guys in a way that some of the more veteran-laden coaching staffs under Steven Silas struggle to do. Ultimately, that's what I think it comes down to. Yeah, we can talk about the X's and O's. Yes, it's great that they have guys like Sullivan and Hodges with prior three-point shooting, I suppose, guru experience. Even he, even if even if Ben doesn't want to be considered a guru, he is a guru. Let's be real. I think the track I'm pulling shows that. I'm pulling that quote later. That's now that oh. is now a sound drop. Thank you for giving okay. me that. That was a, that's the gift that's going to keep on giving. Jesus. I should have <laughs> thought that through. But no, even if you know, we ascribe certain skill sets as in their wheelhouse, like teaching the ability to shoot from three-point range and having the right mechanics, which is super important because the long-term projections of so many guys in this Rockets rebuild depends on how much you can maximize their shooting and what their three-point percentage is going to be four or five years from now when they're entering their peak. And so that is important. But at the same time, it's not revolutionary. There's lots of guys that know how to coach shooting. There's lots of guys that can tell you, okay, you should really prioritize this with your younger players. And so having the right emphasis and the right technique is only part of it. The other part is how you actually communicate that and how you teach it. And so having a flexible approach, having an ability to get through on an individual level and prioritizing not just the message, but how you're communicating it and making sure that it's presented in the best way to get the player to actually take action on it, that is a huge part of the puzzle that not everyone prioritizes. And you can easily look at just this last year's Rockets teams, right? And it, Lionel Holland's widely regarded as a fantastic defensive coach throughout his year. Right. Didn't really exactly make much of a difference last year, right? So it might have been a case where, yeah, Lionel Holland's might have all the you know know-how in the world, but he wasn't able to convey or properly convey that knowledge to this group of young guys. So hopefully we see this coaching staff and the lessons that they try to impart have a bit more success. Now, I do want to get to the actual there's, – there's this it, – it's just so beautiful to hear Ben Sullivan talk about shooting from his perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to read this quote back verbatim. So continuing on from the shooting quote, he goes, he gave me a guy and he's referencing chip England here. He gave me a guide on how to go about shooting, how you assess and how you come up with a plan. In which order do you go evaluating not only the biometrics of a person's body, how they physically are able to hold the ball or extend their wrist and elbow and hand placement and all those things, but then also the mental side and growing their shooting mentality. And so with each individual person, it's kind of like a baseball swing or a golf swing or a snowflake. They're all similar, but they're all uniquely different. And each person's shot is very specific to their own body, their own mind, and 
how they're made up. And so you have to go in and evaluate where they are physically, mentally, what's their relationship with their shot. You build a plan around that after getting to know them, what they're about, what they're looking to improve. That's the mentality going into each project. Being a shooting coach, that was my title, but that's not my current title. Now it's more something that I do. It's something that I'll work on guys with, but that's not all that I do. I think that's fantastic. I think that to me screams like insane high IQ coaching right there. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look through NBA history, look, there's lots of great shooters that have had different form. I know, you know, we can look at some guys and say their form is textbook and that's true, but there's other guys who did not have textbook form and yet we're still very good shooters. Tyrese Halliburton's form is awful. I'm going to put that out there and and he shoots and he still shoots at a fairly high level. Yeah. 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 So part of it is about being willing to adapt to the player and meet them in a place where they are going to be most receptive. And so, yeah, we can talk about textbook form all day, but if another player is more comfortable doing it in a different way and can still get to a very good percentage, then meet them where they are. It goes back to that theme of, you know, having a customizable, flexible approach as opposed to being rigid, because lots of guys know how you're supposed to shoot around the NBA. It's not some huge state secret when it comes to what the form should look like and what you would in a perfect world get everyone to shoot like. For a variety of factors, that's not always realistic. So getting the best out of your team can often entail sort of meeting people halfway, meeting people at a reasonable point to get the most out of what they are willing and able to do. And it sounds like that's what the Rockets and particularly Ben Sullivan are trying to do here. Last thing we want to get to here on today's show, Jalen Brown finally inked his Supermax extension with the Boston Celtics. Now, Jalen Brown has been long rumored as a potential target for the Houston Rockets. Clearly, he has a strong relationship with new Rockets head coach Ime Udoka, and there was some speculation as to whether or not the Celtics would even go forward with this Supermax offer based on his previous playoff run and just, again, with the new... CBA implications coming into place. It's not as simple as just, oh, we'll just we'll we'll pay these guys top mm-hmm. dollar and we'll figure it out later on. You do have to be a little bit more tactical in how you decide to allocate your cap resources moving forward. Ben, this is a $300 million extension for Jalen. I just want to read out these values. Starting in the year 2024-2025 season, he'll be making 52 million, then it goes to 56 million. 60 million, 64 million, and in his final year of this contract, 2028, 2029, he'll be making 69 million dollars. Nice. Not nice for whoever's paying him by that point. You got to pray that the TV money is like on another level, but yes, nice. Um, Like, I, I, you know, as far as Jalen Brown still potentially being a target that the Rockets may or may not want to pursue down the line. You know, this type of contract, I know that the Celtics were in a position where they basically had to pay it, right? Because what are you going to do? Let Jalen Brown walk for nothing. You try to flip him and get 75 cents on the dollar at next deadline or this off season. It doesn't make sense. That's, that's the thing that's always bugged me about the way NBA cap works is just, you know, if a player plays at a certain level, you're going to get paid regardless. Like you're going to, and the, the, the floor yeah, for yeah, where yeah. the bar that a player needs to meet to qualify for what is essentially their max top dollar is not honestly that, you know, crazy. You see different guys getting maxed out left, right and center every single season. And you're like, okay, well that guy's really not worthy of a max, but yeah. he's getting it just because that's how the NBA landscape works. I don't think at this point on this contract, 
Jalen Brown isn't a name that I would want to see the Rockets pursue further down the line unless they really get to a point where it's like, okay, maybe he's a complimentary piece, but that's like you're being paid like a tier one, like number one option on a contender type guy with that money. Yeah, I largely agree. And while we should throw out the caveat that it's all about percentage of the salary cap, I know there's a lot of sticker shock to these numbers, but with the salary cap exploding the way it is, league revenues increasing, it's not as if a 60 plus million dollar contract the next few years is analogous to the same figure from four or five years ago. I think it's very easy to get bogged down in what fans are used to from previous seasons, as opposed to adjusting to the new reality of just exploding finances in the NBA. So it is important to have some context. With that said, even in regards to and in the context of this current cap environment, what it's projected to be the next five years, that's pretty extreme for a player who's very good. But in my opinion, somewhere between, I don't know, 15 and 25 in terms of just overall value around the NBA. Yeah, it's a lot. To me, the more important lesson from this and i'm not necessarily saying boston made a mistake because they have been very close to a title the last few years almost won one with Ime. they were favored to do so when they got the lead early in that golden state series in 2022 it's very important to sell high on a guy like that if you're not certain about his long-term fit because right now that valuation is going to well number one it's going to take a lot of suitors out of the market because they just can't match the salary And beyond that, it's going to decrease Boston's potential return simply because teams that are potentially interested in Jalen Brown are going to see that as something of a negative to his value. The fact that he will be on their books for that amount, despite not being a truly top 10 type player in the league. And so what it should tell you is that if you have a player that's going down that road, which you're going to have to offer them the max, but they're probably not a true top 10 guy. Maybe it makes sense to trade them at an earlier point before they get that big deal and when they're even younger to really maximize the return. Now, again, it's easier said than done in the case of Boston because they were right on the precipice of a championship all these years. And to an extent, they still are. That adds a new wrinkle to it. But it's something that maybe the Rockets will have to consider, depending on how some of these young guys, you know, the core six we talk about all the time, Jalen, Alpi, Jabari, Tari. Now, Amin Thompson and Cam Whitmore, if some of these guys, it looks like, are sort of heading down that same trajectory where they're probably going to get a max, but you're not sure if they're really at that top 10, top 15 level to justify something of that extent, then maybe there's a hard decision that eventually has to be made that, hey, it makes sense for us to maximize the value by cashing out on this player before you get to a point in which you're sort of boxed in and you can't let him leave for nothing. So you basically give him the contract that that's his market value, but then all of a sudden, it sort of boxes you in with what you can do with your roster and that player is just sort of there moving forward. And it remains to be seen if he can truly be, you know, the one of the two best players on a championship team. I feel like that's where Boston is. And it's hard to say they made a mistake because we don't know what other offers were there. And they were right in the precipice of a championship, even this year, just one home game seven from the NBA finals. But I do think that for the Rockets and other rebuilding teams, it's just a cautionary tale of in some situations, you have to think multiple years out and, In some cases, yeah, it may make sense to trade that guy a year before you have to give him that contract, because I do think it's pretty clear if the Boston Celtics had tried to trade Jalen Brown a year ago, his potential return to them would be a lot more than what it is today. 
Now, granted, because it's the Supermax, I don't think they actually can trade him for a year, but that's beside the point. Even if they could, that contract in and of itself drags down the value and it reduces the suitor simply because of how large it is. So sometimes, especially if you're not at a contending level, that's the wrinkle that makes it difficult for Boston, then yeah, you need to think ahead. And sometimes there may be hard decisions that need to be made in advance so that you don't get yourself in the situation that the Celtics are in today, which is boxed in at a, you know, still a very good level, but remains to be seen if they can ever, you know, take the final step and get into, you know, a true championship mode and have the parade that their fans want. On that note, let us know in the YouTube comments what a year three leap looks like or should look like for Jalen Green. Your thoughts on the Rockets' improved coaching staff and the Jalen Brown situation, whether or not you'd actually still like to see the Rockets maybe try to make a push for him down the line. Ben, let everyone know where they can track you down at. Yep, Ben Dubose on Twitter, the Rockets Wire on Twitter, the Logger Line on Twitter, and RocketsWire.usatoday.com for all your daily Houston Rockets news coverage. That's going to do it for another edition of Locked on Rockets. As always, thank you so much for checking out the show. If you haven't done so yet, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Just search Locked on Rockets. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. But as always, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to having you back right here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball.